Let's pray together. As we bow our heads, isn't that just an amazing, amazing truth that Jesus Christ as Lord is stronger than all? That's it's a truth that's expressed in many places in Scripture, but one of them is just exactly where Scott took us a few minutes ago in Romans 8 when, again, Paul says, and we know many of us these words well, but we need to hear them again and again, that there's no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ because the law of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, it's a spirit of life, sets us free from the law of sin and of death. And you know, when we come in here and we worship and we get ready to listen to the Word, we, sometimes we just need a few moments, even with everything that's already been done, the opportunities we've had just to quiet our hearts and maybe even do some business before the Lord. And so maybe just before I pray, just as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and it's no one but you and just your heart before the Lord, I don't know if you carried burdens in with you, I don't know if you brought joys in uh, with you. But particularly for those of us maybe in in hard places, in difficult spots today, isn't it good to be reminded, even to sing out and sing loud, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that he is stronger. You know, right now, just not out loud, just quietly in your heart, if you need a moment just to say, thank you, Jesus, that you are stronger than, than what? Than my fears? Thank you, Jesus, that you're stronger than my hard spirit? and my inclination to anger, than my problems with finances, my problems with my spouse or my kids. Just in this moment, just as a way, a very simple way to perhaps unburden our hearts before the Lord, before we go to the Word, just again, quietly, no one else needs to hear, but Lord Jesus, thank you that you are stronger than. What is he stronger than? What do you need to remember this morning? Where have you been set free and maybe just forgot? Lord Jesus, we are so grateful this morning, so very grateful for the fact that you are stronger than everything within us, than the war that, as Scott reminded us, that battle that wages, Lord, for control, not just every day, but every moment of our hearts and our lives and our direction. And Father, we come back to the same truths again and again because they're eternal truths and they're powerful truths, and we need to remember, we need to come back to the table of communion again and again and remind, be reminded that the price of sin and, and brokenness has been paid, paid in full. We need to be reminded that there's no condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ, that there is a law, the law of the Holy Spirit, and it has set us free, that's the word, free, from the law of sin and death. We need to be reminded that you are stronger and that you are Lord of all. Father, we thank you for that reminder through communion. We thank you that we are reminded of it as we sing and worship. Thank you for the scripture that Christina read earlier, Father, that reminded us that that a day is coming when, as if a garden from the ground springs forth, righteousness is going to spring forth across the earth because Jesus Christ is coming back. We look forward to that day, Lord, but we live in the meantime, and that's why we come back here to worship you but also to find hope and direction for another day and another week and another season. And so, Lord, as we go to your word now, we want, as always, as much as ever, for you to be the one who teaches us. A preacher has to preach and people have to hear, but but Jesus has to do the work, Lord Jesus. And so we invite you to work in us and among us in our hearts today. We ask that as your Holy Spirit, those of us who are believers, your Holy Spirit lives within us. And, Father, even those who are not, your, your word says your Holy Spirit is among us. We We invite him to have his way with us today. Father, that whether the words are clear or confusing, that the Spirit will speak loudly and that we will listen, humble ourselves, and obey. 
Father, we pray that you right now, through the power and the ministry of your wonderful Holy Spirit, will guide us in truth. We pray that he will guard us from error, confusion, and misunderstanding, that even right now, he will deliver us, prompt us just to lay down the baggage, set all the distractions aside, and for these next few minutes, Lord, in a sense of expectation, see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of the word. May we see him only this morning in the preaching of the word. And Father, as we hear and listen and respond and as we leave, may it be, Lord, as we're about to see in the story this morning, the disciples who went out with great joy, may we go out with great joy, Lord, not because we came to church and all our problems got fixed, but we came together as the body of Christ and sat at the feet of Jesus, the one who loved us enough to have nails driven through them, but then to rise from the dead in victory. It's him we worship, it's him we praise, it's him we seek now, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. While you're sitting down, the boys and girls can scoot out for Children's Church. As always, we invite the kids who wish to, from five-year-old up through second grade, go spend some time in God's Word in Children's Church as we spend some time in God's Word right here. And if you have a Bible, if you're remaining behind here, I want you to grab your Bible right now, and I actually want you to turn in it with me to two different passages of Scripture this morning. And I want you to find both of them, and then I'll try to connect the dots, and I think you'll very easily see how they fit together. But the first place I want you to go in the Bible this morning is Acts chapter 1. Go to the book of Acts chapter 1. When you've found it, I want you to mark it somehow, put a bookmark, put your bulletin there, something, and then go back in the Bible just a little bit to Luke chapter 24. We're going to eventually land and spend the the bulk of our time in Acts chapter 1, but we need to start because there's something here in Luke chapter 24, and I'll read it for you in a moment. I'll show you what it is that I believe we need to see in order to understand and make sense of where it is that we are going to go. As this morning, we take one final look. As you know, if you've been here and you need to know if you don't, we've spent the weeks since Easter Sunday, and today is the last one, at least for now, where we are looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, where he showed up, to whom he showed up, and the difference that it made. We'll talk about all that stuff again here in a few minutes, but before we look at the text itself and and this final post-resurrection scene, uh, let me share with you this morning, and some of you may know this, maybe based on your own church background or history, may be aware of this, others may not. But this coming Thursday, May, I think it's the 25th, is in many churches around the world, particularly in the Catholic Church and in the Anglican Church and perhaps some others as well, this coming Thursday in many churches is a day of celebration known as Ascension Day. And many churches that don't celebrate it on the actual day Thursday will next Sunday, they will celebrate what they call Ascension Sunday. And the reason for that is this Thursday marks exactly 40 days since Easter Sunday. 40 days since we as believers all gathered together and celebrated and remembered the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And and the reason churches celebrate that is because the Bible says, and we'll see it here in the text this morning, that it was exactly 40 days after the original Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, when Jesus rose from the dead, that it was 40 days after that exactly that he ascended ascended back into heaven, that he went back to the right hand of his father, Ascension Day, 40 days after his resurrection. And 
And, and while Ascension Day, Ascension Sunday, is something we've never really celebrated or observed in a formal way around here, at least at Maranatha, you know, I got thinking this, the, this year, this week, as I was studying the passage, that maybe we should. Maybe we don't give enough attention to the fact we celebrate Jesus' birth, we celebrate his death, we celebrate his resurrection, but we don't spend a lot of time on his ascension. But I believe it's absolutely critical. And absolutely essential for many reasons, one of which, and this is where we're going in God's word today, one of the reasons it's so essential is that it was at that, on that day of his ascension, moments before he departed from earth, his final post-resurrection appearance in the flesh that Jesus gave his disciples, and through his disciples also gave to us some of the most important instructions he ever delivered. Some of the most important words that he ever spoke. And so this morning, beginning here, and I want you to look at it now in Luke chapter 24, and then we're going to, as soon as we read this, in just a moment, jump over to Acts chapter 1. That's what we are going to dig into in this final study of what happened after the empty tomb, the ascension of Jesus Christ from earth back to his Father's right hand in heaven. And and as I said, we're going to look here in Luke 24. It's recorded actually in the final four verses of the chapter, verses 50 through 53 of Luke chapter 24, where in very simple terms, this is what the Scripture says, follow along in your Bible. It says, And he, that is Jesus, led them, that's his eleven faithful disciples, out as far as the village of Bethany. And there he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And he, Jesus, was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. Now we're just going to park here for like two minutes. Uh, Just long enough to observe or to point out a couple of things. One just sort of very simple and in passing, and the other is really sort of the critical point of where we're going this morning. But but the first thing I'd have you notice about those very... uh, simple, those very plain four verses describing Jesus' ascension. It's just simply the way in which, and if you look at it again, I think you'll see what I mean, the way in which Luke, the author of this gospel, very plainly, and really without any apology or any window dressing whatsoever, reports or records the ascension of Jesus Christ as a fact. Guys, this is just what happened. And that's, that's striking in a sense because Luke, if you've read his gospel, of all four gospels, Luke is the detailed guy. He's the guy who gives us stuff in specifics and he, and he brings things in that some of the other gospel authors don't. And yet all he says here is he led him out as far as Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Simple. It's almost as if, as if, as I read through this, reread it through this week, it's almost as if between the lines what he's saying to us is, hey gang, what else did you expect him to do? I mean, he said he was going to do it all along, and, and that's where he belongs in the first place. It was just time here, and then he left. Simple. He's saying this is just what really happened. But what I think really demands our attention in these four verses, and again, this is the springboard for Acts chapter 1, And I want you to look at it in your Bible, specifically again in verse 52, but I want you to notice about Luke's very simple recording of Jesus' ascension is the way in which his disciples responded to it. Because if you look at it, what it says, it says that the mood they went back to Jerusalem and Jesus lifts up his hands, he blesses them, he departs from their sight, and verse 52 says, after worshiping him, they returned, the disciples did, to Jerusalem with great what? What's your Bible say? Joy. Joy. 
They went back rejoicing and said, thank God for the temple. And just for who knows how long, just continued to worship and praise Jesus in a spirit of joy following his ascension. And while I don't know about you, I consider that, and this is the first major thing I want you to see. Maybe you want to write this down this morning. This, that is, to me, evidence of a truly remarkable change. First thing we need to take note of in the story of Jesus Christ's ascension is that this spirit of great joy was a truly remarkable change because it is certainly not, everybody say not, it is certainly not the way the disciples felt before Jesus' death and resurrection when he merely informed them this is what he was going to do. Throughout his ministry and with increasing intensity as he got closer to the cross, Jesus kept telling his disciples, hey guys, get ready, I'm about to go away. Now he's talking about the cross, but he was also many times speaking with his final ascension in view as well. He said, I'm going away. And, and every time he brought it up, you know what the, what the Bible says? His disciples got agitated. They got upset. John, John 14, 27, Jesus tells them, this is the night of his betrayal. This is uh, the upper room, the last supper. Jesus says, I'm going away soon. And then he has to say to them in John 14, 27, don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Why? Because their hearts were troubled and fearful. Jesus is going, what are we going to do? He's going away. That can't be possible. He talks about it some more. You get to John 16, verse 6. He says to them, guys, because I've said these things to you about my departure, sorrow fills your hearts. Now we've got troubled, fearful, and sorrowful. A little further down in that same conversation, John 16, 12, Jesus says, and, and I've got a whole lot more I want to say to you. There are more things about what's coming that I want to tell you. He said, but you can't bear it right now. You are on overlo emotional overload because I've told you I'm going away. Then you get down a little further in that same passage, John 16, verses 17 and 18. After Jesus has laid all this out repeatedly that he's going away, uh, John tells us that the disciples turn to one another and say, what is this thing he's telling us? We do not understand what he's talking about. Why would Jesus go away? So doesn't it seem like kind of a leap? I mean, if that's the way they were, when Jesus simply mentioned the fact that he was going away, and they're sorrowful and fearful and, and, and overwhelmed and despondent, doesn't it seem like kind of a leap that when he finally does actually do it, he departs from their sight? It says that after worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they just went to the temple and they just kept worshiping and praising. It's all they could think to do. They were just thrilled in the aftermath of Jesus' ascension. I call that, at the very least, a remarkable change. A remarkable change. And so what we're going to address in the rest of our time this morning is what accounts for that? What happened? What happened? What exactly was it between informing them of his ascension, of his departure, the fact that he was going away that so upset them, and the reality of it at which they were overjoyed? Something, would you agree with me, must have happened in between to change their perspective. Well, that's what we're going to dig into in the rest of our time together. Why did their sorrow over his departure give way to joy? The answer is found in Acts chapter 1. So turn there now. You can leave Luke behind. We're not going back there again this morning. We are going to park now in Acts chapter 1, where Luke, the same author, the guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts, tells the same story again. He takes us back to the scene of Jesus' final post-resurrection appearance, this scene outside Jerusalem by Bethany, the ascension, and, and evidently Luke considered that moment in Jesus, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, so important, so significant that he records it for a second time, only this time he does it with much more detail. 
So what I want you to do now is follow along while I read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. To some of you, this may be new. Others of you have heard this many times before, but let's see if we can't listen with fresh ears, pay attention with fresh eyes, and see if we can figure out what accounts for the change. Here's what it says. The first account I compose, Luke's talking about the gospel of Luke, where we just were. The first account I composed, Theophilus, that's the man he's writing this account for, at least originally, or dedicating it to. So it was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these, his apostles, his disciples, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Just what we've been talking about the last few weeks, right? These post-resurrection appearances, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he said these things... He was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, angels, stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, was probably not easy to catch on the strength or on the merits of just one reading through the text. But in those 11 verses, we find the answer to why these guys went from sorrow over the thought of Jesus' departure to joy at the reality of it. And where it's found is is in four promises that are in those 11 verses. And that's what I want to show you in the time we have left. Four promises which accompanied or came at the moment of Jesus' ascension, which helped turn the disciples' great sorrow they'd felt before into great joy. And I want you to listen close to these promises because here's the thing. These four promises he gave to the disciples are the same four promises he's given to us. Here's where they are, number, what they are, number one. First of all, Jesus said the first promise Jesus gave them that began to turn their sorrow that they had before into great joy is the promise according to verses four and five when Jesus said, number one, you will be baptized. The first thing Jesus tells them, the first promise he gives them is you will be baptized. You know, a few things that Jesus ever said and are recorded for us in the scripture <laughs> have been more diversely interpreted and uniquely implied than what Jesus says here in verse 5, when he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. People have taken that interesting places. People have uh, given that interesting and unique applications, and, and really the, the, the whole doctrine of Holy Spirit baptism, it probably warrants a sermon or two of its own, but you're not getting one today. We're just going to look here for a moment. And so in a moment, let me see if I can summarize maybe just the essence of of what I believe we ought to see here. Because, and you've heard me say this before, the best way to interpret the things in Scripture we don't fully understand is through the things that we do. 
okay? The best way to interpret the things Jesus said that aren't clear are through the things Jesus said which are. And Jesus said something next to this whole idea of Holy Spirit baptism that people take a lot of places. That's a little confusing, perhaps. He said it next to something very clear, water baptism. Look at the verse again. He said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And Jesus did that for a number of reasons, but one thing I think is to make the less clear more understandable through what we do uh, more clearly understand. Because as Christians, we understand, and it helps that we just had one six weeks ago, that water baptism is the outward physical representation of what Christ has done for us on the inside, right? Everybody who's baptized is there to give a testimony, to say, this is how Jesus saved me. And, and, and water baptism as such, in a word, uh, water baptism is an act for the believer of, everybody say, identification. It's simply my way of showing you, your way of showing me, I now belong to Jesus Christ. He has done for me on the inside what you just saw happen to me on the outside. Well, spirit baptism, Holy Spirit baptism, at its essence, is the same basic thing. Only instead of being outward and physical and visible, it's internal and spiritual and invisible. And, and, and while it was something yet to come, I, I understand the verse says that, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. It was something yet to come for these disciples because they were sort of in this interim transition period between the Old Testament and New Testament way of doing things. What the Bible makes clear after their Holy Spirit baptism is that Holy Spirit baptism, that what Jesus promised here, is something that happens to every believer the moment we trust Jesus Christ for salvation. It is not a second work. It's not a third work. It's not a subsequent work. It's the moment of salvation. The Apostle Paul says so. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. You don't need to turn there. You may want to write it down. Paul says this, by one Spirit, Holy Spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Now, we can get into a lot of theology, or we can just be real practical. I'm going to be practical. If we're all baptized as believers, if it's true of every believer that we are all baptized into one body, no exception, it has to happen at the moment of salvation. That's when it must happen. And what Paul is saying, and what I believe the rest of the New Testament backs up, is to say that the moment any man, any woman, any child trusts Jesus Christ, they are in that instant baptized by the Holy Spirit. It means they are identified in the eyes of God, which would not, we agree, his eyes matter most, right? In the eyes of God, we are identified with and united to the body of Christ. In God's eyes, once and for all, we are are his. To be baptized by the Holy Spirit in very practical, personal terms means you're in the family and you're here to stay. You're in the family and you're here forever. And would you agree with me? That's a great promise. I mean, to know that what I have in Christ, what he has given me, can't be taken away, that it's permanent. I've been baptized. I can't be unbaptized by the Holy Spirit. I belong to him. And so Jesus said, and this is the first promise that turns their sorrow to joy. Hey guys, from this point forward, just understand, you are mine, not changing. You belong to me. But that's not all he said. It's immediately followed by a second promise. He says, first of all, you'll be baptized. You will be, not many days from now, fully, and it happened at Pentecost, identified with the body of Christ forever. Secondly, he says, and when that happens, you will receive power. Second promise Jesus gave his disciples is, as my disciples, as my people, you will receive power. Let me ask you a question. And this is those of you who know Jesus Christ. 
Has God ever asked you, and, and I know he probably didn't do it in an audible voice, but you knew it was him speaking to your heart, asked you to do something, you knew I do not have the power to do this. God is telling me to do something, prompting me to do something, in obe- not something weird, but something in obedience to his word, like share your faith with an unbeliever, like step up and teach a Sunday school class, like give beyond your means because he's compelling you to do so, to forgive someone who hurts you, to go to the mission field even just for a couple of weeks. And you're like, I know it's Jesus speaking to me, but I know I don't have the power to do that. Anybody ever been there? I've been there, right? They're all, like weekly I'm there, okay? <laughs> you are too. But then you did it. You said, I don't have the power, I don't have the ability, it's not my thing, and you did it anyway, because the Lord prompted you to do, and lo and behold, something good happened. Somebody got blessed. Maybe it was just you. God used it. Maybe he used it in ways you couldn't see, but you could look back now and say, I am so glad I said yes to the Lord. In that moment, though I didn't have the power, he used it anyway. Anybody ever had that experience where God worked despite you, perhaps, but poured out his power in you? Well, this passage... This post-resurrection scene, the Bible's explanation for how such things happen is found right here in verses 7 and 8. He said to them, look at your Bible, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive, everybody say power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is this. See, they want to know when Jesus is going to bring the thunder. All right? They want to know when he's going to set up his kingdom and wipe out the Romans, and, and they're going to be on their thrones, and it's all going to be good. And Jesus says, no, 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 you got things out of order. It's not for you to know that. Jesus said, guys, there's some stuff that right now you don't know. There's some stuff you can't know. There's some stuff you won't know until the Father decides it's time. But what you should know is this. I'm going to give you the power you need. I am going to give you the power you need to go out and serve me in this broken, sinful, hostile world. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit will be in you. And guess what, guys? He is enough. He's enough. He will give you the power to do what I send you to do. And I believe it's critical, it's crucial that Jesus told his disciples that up front, that he told them about the power before, as he's about to do, he gave them the assignment. Because if Jesus told them the assignment first without informing them of the power, and and he'd have told them, hey guys, guess what's going to happen over the next few years? Guess where I'm going to send you, and what I'm going to ask you, and the problems I'm going to put in front of you, and the people who are going to oppose you, and how it's going to end for all of you. Not well. What would they have done? Same thing you'd have done, same thing I'd have done. I'm out of here. (laughs) That is not what I signed up for. I think if he told me the assignment first, they would have fled, or at least they would have wanted to. But he didn't tell them the assignment. He told them the power. Told them about the power that he would give them first. And by giving them the promise of the Holy Spirit's baptism and the Holy Spirit's power, what were they then able to do? Even though they didn't know where he was going to send, they didn't know day by day what he was going to ask them to do, they went out and turned the world around for Jesus Christ. The one who 40 days earlier or so had denied Jesus three times, the first day led 3,000 people to Christ. And in the years since, thousands and millions more could say the same. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit's power. 
Because Jesus promised, number one, though I'm leaving, you'll be baptized. Number two, though I'm leaving, because I'm leaving, you will receive power. And then there's a third promise he gives them in the rest of verse eight. He says, and you will be power for a specific purpose. It's not just power, unfettered power for no particular reason. No, it's power, number three, to be my witnesses. The third promise, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. You know, the reason for Jesus' ascension Right here, this story we're reading is because at this point in time, he'd done everything the Father sent him here to do. He'd been born of a virgin. He'd lived a perfect life. He died his sacrificial death. He'd risen from the dead. He had appeared over 40 days to prove time and again that he really was here. And, and, and that meant, among other things, that God's wrath against sin was satisfied. It meant the way to heaven was now open. And and through it all, whether these disciples realized it or not, through this whole process, you know what Jesus had been doing? He'd been equipping these guys to take the baton and run. All through that work, he had been preparing them because he knew he was going away. He knew that he would be returning to the Father's right hand. He had been equipping them to take this message to the world. That's why, again, he says, one more time, look at your Bibles, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, the definition, the Bible definition of witness is really, really simple. It's somebody who tells you what they've seen and heard. It's that, that's all it is. A witness is simply someone who says to you, these things I know to be true. I'll stake my life on them. Because I saw it and, and heard it with my own eyes, and I'm here to tell you. And and the whole point of this conversation, really the, uh, the essence of this final post-resurrection appearance and interaction with his disciples, was that since Jesus was leaving, he's saying, guys, and now the job is in your hands. I've been leading the way. You've been at my side. I'm getting out of the way. You're in front. You're my witnesses. This is your assignment. And so he's saying, guys, here's what you need to know. Wherever you go, point people to me. Whoever you meet, talk to them about me. As you live, live in a way that reflects and magnifies me. But you know what's easy to miss about this command? You shall be my witnesses. And honestly, I'm not sure until this week I'd ever thought about it before. It's also a promise. It is a promise. It's a command. You will be my witnesses. But it's a promise. You will be my witnesses, whether you like it or not. Because if you name my name, people are going to look at you and they're going to think of me. Now, what we say at our baby dedication just last week. As parents, we show by the way we live and love our kids, we are giving them a picture of Jesus Christ. As a church, the way we interact with one another, we're giving each other a picture of Jesus Christ. The way we live as believers, if we identify ourselves as believers before the world, they look at us and they think, that's Jesus Christ, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. We are witnesses. It's a promise. Maybe a good one, maybe a bad one, maybe a confused one, but you're a witness. And, and actually, I actually find that rather encouraging. Because if it's both a command and a promise, you know what that means? We don't have to get uptight. We don't have to make it as complicated as we tend to make it. Tell them what you've seen and heard. Well, what do I say every time we have baptism? The most powerful service we do all year is baptism. Because a bunch of people stand in the water and they say, this is what Jesus did for me. And we rejoice more than we rejoice over any sermon I've ever preached. And I'm glad. We tell them, this is, tell them what I've seen and heard. Tell them what he did for me. 
Jesus is saying, I believe here in not so many words. Just tell them the story and I'll take care of the rest. And the story gets people's attention. Positive, negative, but it always gets people's attention. 250 years ago in Scotland, people were, think of this, people were getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning in Edinburgh, Scotland, and going out into the fields to hear the great revival preacher George Whitfield preach the gospel. Five in the morning, they'd stay all day, by the thousands. This wasn't some little prayer meeting of six or seven people. They go to hear the gospel. It's happened. It went on and on and on as Whitfield preached the gospel. And the story's told that one morning as people were rising up early to go out of the fields of Scotland to hear Whitfield preach the gospel, that a man, we don't know his name, was on the way, and he looked as he was traveling on the road, and all of a sudden alongside him on the road was the great Scottish philosopher and skeptic, religious agnostic, David Hume. David Hume, who had spoken against faith, religious faith, time and again, and this man who saw Hume walking next to him by the road was shocked. <laughs> he said, Mr. Hume, what are you doing? Why are you going to hear the great evangelist George Whitfield? I thought you didn't believe the gospel. He said, I don't. But he does. And I want to hear him preach. I want to hear that story. I think the same could be said of the disciples. I think the same should be said of me and of you. Even if they don't believe, but, but he does, but she does, but you do. And you're different because of it. And I'm different because of it. Why? Because I've been baptized with the Spirit and filled with this power. And I've got a story to tell. I'm exactly like, you're exactly like the guys that Jesus spoke to on the day of his ascension. Exactly like them if you know Christ. And they could say, I don't believe it, but, but they sure do. What a compliment. What a thrill. That's a witness. Is that how we're living? Is that what our lives say? Jesus said, number one, you'll be baptized. Number two, you'll receive power. Number three, you'll be my witnesses. Fourth and finally, he brings it all home. He gives them one final promise that turned their sorrow to joy when he said, or actually the angel said on behalf, you will see me again. You will see me again. You know, here at Maranatha, many of you may not know this. Maranatha is a weird word, but it means something very precious. It means come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come back soon. And I wasn't there when that name was chosen for, for this church, but I understand that when it was chosen, it was chosen as a, a strong affirmation and really a sort of just a, a, a cherished treasure that, that this is something we believe. Jesus Christ promised to come back, and he will, and we're looking forward to it. As he came once as a baby, he'll come a second time as a king. And he'll come in the clouds and and that promise, among other things, was given right here in verse 11. Look at it one final time in your Bible. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come again in just the same way you watched him go into heaven. Well, who would agree with me? That's a great promise. Jesus is coming back. Amen? We're looking forward to that. It's a great promise. You know what I... What, here's a second thing I'd never noticed in this passage, though, until this week. That the promise... Is, uh, is introduced or it is preceded by a rebuke. Before given the promise, the angel rebukes the disciples. Look at what it says. Again, because it's easy to miss. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Then he gives the promise. I never thought about that rebuke before, but now I understand it's huge. Because as, as, as the theologian John Stott explains, he says the reason that the angel said that to the men is because, quote, it was the earth and not the sky which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. 
The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world that needed him. There'll be plenty of time to look at Jesus when we get to heaven. So don't stand around speculating, writing up your charts and maps and graphs about when Jesus is coming back. He said, men of Galilee, stop looking at the sky and look around. You're looking at the white clouds. We're talking about white fields for harvest. That's where you're supposed to go. That's what you're supposed to be looking at. That's what you are supposed to now be all about. And so even though the time of Jesus' return wasn't clear, the fact of it meant this, disciples, it's time to get busy. It's time to go. And you know, one of the things that excites me so much right now, as much as anything has in a long time, is that I believe God is stirring that passion in our church in a way that I don't know that he has before. I see it happening. Uh, All of a sudden, and I know it's not all of a sudden because God has a plan, but we've been in this neighborhood eight years. We came to this neighborhood saying we know we're called to this neighborhood and we have no idea why. So for eight years we've been praying. Show us what to do. Now what do we have? What does God have? What is he doing among us? There's good news clubs. And kids are getting saved. There's Financial Peace University in our neighborhood where people are hearing the gospel. Today, a brand new ministry starts, Abundant Life Food Distribution. We're going to meet families and pray for them and see if we can't show them the love of Christ with our hands and our feet and our faces. There's the stuff that goes on over at Taylor. There's this life on mission class that you've been, many of you have been going to and, and learning and being challenged to share your faith. And you know, all of those are, are, are fueled by, by the understanding that people need Christ. But I think underneath it all, they're also being fueled by a sense of urgency that time is short. Opportunities are short, that's for sure. Sometimes they're fleeting. And I believe there is a sense that God is putting in many of our hearts to say this is what we must do as the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's good because while this this promise, you will see me again, is a great comfort to us in our affliction, it's also a great incentive to keep from getting comfortable. And going, I've got mine and we've got ours, and hope somebody tells them, but I don't see that happening here. I'm so thankful. He's coming back provides fuel to our mission. You know, throughout this series, just this brief series of messages I have stressed to you, and hopefully you've latched onto it, that while as Christians we believe and we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and we should, what we've been after is what difference does it make that he lives today? And, and maybe this final, this Acts chapter 1, Luke 24, post-resurrection scene, maybe it addresses that question better than, than any other Because remember this, that what the four promises here did for the disciples, it turned their sorrow into joy, the the baptism, the the, the power, the witness, the promise. Those four promises are for us just as much as they were for them. It should do the same thing for us. It should turn our sorrow, our fearfulness, our tendency to withdraw into great joy. Because you've been, if you know Jesus, baptized by the Holy Spirit. Because you've been, if you know Jesus, given his power. Because you have been called and promised to be a witness if you've trusted Jesus. And you and I, we have the promise of his return, that he's coming back. And that's why the big idea of today's message is that in the meantime, until we meet him again, here's the big idea. We have all we need to get the job done. There's nothing lacking. There's not one more track that could be written, one more pamphlet or presentation that could be made that will tell us something we didn't know before. There's no extra power somewhere that we just haven't plugged into. It's all there. And listen, this is just as much for me as it is for anyone else. But we have all we need to get the job done. The job of taking Jesus Christ to lost people. And Father, I pray that we'll be faithful to that. Father, that those who are faithful and have been faithful in it for years will not grow weary in doing good. 
Father, those of us who've dipped in and out and said, I'll, I'll work on that witnessing thing when I get a chance, and that testifying to Christ, Lord, that, that you would fuel in us this sense of urgency that you gave to the disciples of, I am coming back, and, and it might be soon. Father, I pray that we would understand that we don't need to generate holy boldness. We simply need to yield to the Holy Spirit who will make us bold and make our words and our testimony and our lives a living witness to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Father, we live in a a city, a neighborhood. We live in homes that need the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. I pray we'd be faithful to hear it and live it. Father, take the things of truth spoken this morning and seal them to our hearts and let all the rest be forgotten so that we leave as, as joyful as the disciples went back to Jerusalem, that we would leave in joy today, realizing we have been called and chosen and equipped and empowered to be witnesses in this very city, this very week. The lives you've given us today are all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.